Let's pray. God, uh, thank you for this evening. Thank you for these people here. I pray that uh, your spirit is here with us as we talk about your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So in trying to figure out what book to go through next, um, my wife and I were driving to Southern California, and what usually takes five and a half hours takes about 12 with two kids. So... During that time, we got to read the Bible quite a lot. Or she was reading to me, I was driving. It would be dangerous for me to read while I drive. So she's reading to me, and we started out in Song of Solomon. Um, no, I'm kidding. We didn't go there. Um, we uh, went through the epistles, and then, um, and then I asked her to go through the minor prophets, and then this is kind of how we ended up in Jonah. And so Jonah is what we're going to be doing next. So Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, let's just jump right into it. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and cry out against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. Now keep the word great in mind as we we go through this book, because it's going to come up several more times in this chapter. Let's start out with who Jonah was. Now Jonah was a prophet. He's not a priest, he's a prophet, and what's the difference? And the role of the prophet was to take God's message to the people, while the priest's role was to take the people's message to God. And a prophet was a person who tried to reform others by pointing people in the right direction and to get them to get right with God. And a prophet was was an activist, an activist who tells God's will in order to motivate people to change, to motivate people to change from their oppressed position, to change from their position of evil, because that evil will destroy them. And many viewed prophets as as troublemakers because they were always challenging people. But prophets, for the most part, were were giving hope to discouraged people, were giving hope to hopeless people. Now, priests were different in that they served in the temple. Um, They offered sacrifices. They they led worship. And you'll notice that Israel always had, had a ton of priests, but for the most part, they only had one prophet at a time because it's hard to take more than one prophet at a time. It's like having a nagging mom. Right? You can only take one at a time. They mean well, and they want to point you in the right direction, but you can only take having one, right? So, so one day the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, who's a prophet. And life's not easy when you're a prophet because you have to be willing to speak against authority. And the word comes to Jonah and says, Arise, go to Nineveh. And when you hear from God, and, and sometimes you hear from God, and sometimes it's just a few words. And, they, and the, these few words change your life. They change the trajectory of your life. It says, Arise, go to Nineveh. And we know Jonah was a prophet, but he was a prophet to Israel and not to Nineveh. And what does he have to do with Nineveh at all? See, they didn't have problems that Jonah wanted to worry about. They, they didn't even have a temple to offer sacrifices to God because they didn't even know the God of Israel. And, and word comes to him and it says, Arise, go to Nineveh and cry out against it, preach against it. It's kind of strange how this is expressed because the word doesn't say to go to Nineveh and cry out to it or preach to it. It says to go to Nineveh and cry out against it, to preach against it. So talk about intimidating, right? It's hard enough to preach to people, let alone preach against people. And let's go into a little background about Nineveh. Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. And in the 7th and 8th century B.C., Assyria was was the great world power at the time. 
And ancient historians say that Nineveh was the largest city in the world at the time. It was the most prominent and important city of the Assyrian Empire. It was, it was an empire of domination back then. And in Paul Kern's book, Ancient Siege Warfare, he writes about Assyrian law prescribing mutilation as punishment. Cutting off noses and ears were especially common. Tearing out eyes, cutting off fingers, slicing off lips, castration, pulling out hair, all found in the Assyrian law. And prisoners of war were not the only people that the Assyrians decided to impale and make examples for others that would try to come against their power. And he writes, It is fair to conclude that although atrocity was no stranger to ancient Middle Eastern siege warfare, and although it was not the universal Assyrian practice, the Assyrians were frequently unusually cruel, and that, that this cruelty reflected the character of the Assyrian culture. So talk about an intimidating task for poor Jonah to go to Nineveh and preach against it. And when Israel was split into two sections, there was a northern kingdom and comprised of ten tribes, and then there was a southern kingdom comprised of two tribes. Southern, y'all. And so the northern kingdom's ten tribes were, were captured. They were wiped out by Assyria. And Assyria was, was deeply hated by the Israelites, so much so that a prophet by the name of Nahum had to write about them. He starts out in Nahum chapter 1. Or chapter 3, verse 1. Woe to the bloody city. This is in reference to Nineveh. It is full of lies and robbery. Its victim never departs. And then go down to verse 19. Nahum tells us of the fall of Nineveh here. Your injury has no healing. Your wound is severe. All who hear news of you will clap their hands over you. For upon whom has not your wickedness passed continually? He writes that people will cheer at their fall. Right? Nineveh was so hated by their enemies because of how the captives were treated, mutilated, impaled, separated from their family to be made into slaves and scattered wherever they wanted to have them scattered to. To help you understand how an Israelite at the time felt about Nineveh, think about Nazi Germany and the Jews during that time who were going through the Holocaust. And Nahum said some very strong condemning words to Nineveh. And Nahum said those words while he was in Israel. But the word of the Lord tells Jonah, Arise, go to Nineveh. And the book of Jonah is the opposite of the book of Nahum. And it's quite interesting, but keep this in mind for future studies. We can't go into that totally today. But the word of the Lord comes to Jonah, says, Arise, go to Nineveh. Now keep in mind that Jonah was a northern prophet. So some of his relatives were killed by these Assyrians. And probably some of them were killed by Ninevites. But the word of the Lord tells him to, to go to them and tell them in their face that they're going to face judgment. And Jonah's thinking, these guys mutilated my family. They killed my friends. They've displaced my Israeli people. Now you want me to go there and preach? And you had Nahum prophesy at a distance? Can't I just do that? Can't I just say something from where I am, where I'm comfortable, instead of going there? But you want me to go there? And Nineveh is definitely out of Jonah's comfort zone. Kind of like how the Bay Area was for me when I moved here from Southern California. Scary place for me. I was like, I didn't know what was going to happen to me here. Now it's the other way around. Right? L.A. scares me. So Nineveh is a place you don't want to go even though God calls you there. Right? And Nineveh is full of problems. Nineveh is, is hazardous to your health like L.A. smog. Nineveh is terrifying like L.A. traffic. And what do you do when, when God tells you, get up, go to Nineveh. Go to the place that you don't want to go. 
Because sometimes God will say that to you. And verse 3 is Jonah's response. Verse 3, But Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. And to better appreciate this, you have to understand where these cities were back in this day. So take a look at the map here. You see where Nineveh is relative to Israel. And Israel is that plot of land that's directly east of the Mediterranean Sea. Joppa is on the southern part of that. And, And Nineveh is northeast of that. And the word of the Lord says, Arise, go to Nineveh. And Jonah got the arise part right in response to the Lord, but it wasn't that he could go to Nineveh. He's heading for Tarshish. And is Tarshish in the same direction as Nineveh? It, it's in the opposite direction, right? Look at the map. It's, it's in western Spain. Right? So Jonah is going in the very opposite direction. And, and now there are scholars that argue that Tarshish is not western Spain. Fine. I'm going to give that to whatever. Bottom line, he's running away. Okay? And, and, and it's not towards Nineveh because no matter where you go, he's going to Joppa to go to a port city and you don't get to Nineveh by boat. Okay? So he's, he's not going inland to Nineveh. He's going away. And so Jonah, a prophet, a man of God, he, he's running away from God. A man of God running away from God. Can you believe it? How can you run away from God, especially if you know that He's real? And if you don't know he's real, I have news for you, he is. So you can't run from him. You can't. Where are you going to go? He created everything. Where are you going to go? Psalm chapter 139, 7 through 10 tells us, Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. And that's one one of the things that that disobedience does. That's one of the things that sin does to us. Disobedience or sin requires us to be delusional people. It makes us fool ourselves into thinking that we won't get caught in what we're doing or what we're thinking or, or anything that's happening in my heart. We get fooled into thinking that we're smarter than others. And, and that others won't be able to see the truth. You're wrong. You're wrong. Even if you can fool some people sometimes, you never fool God. Never. And God does reveal things to people, just like He did to, uh, to Nathan when, when David had that sin and he was hiding that sin. You can't hide forever. And we can paint inaccurate pictures of ourselves or try to have others see us differently than we really are, but, but God knows the real you. And it's all going to be exposed. Sooner or later, the truth gets revealed. And the Bible tells us that there is nothing covered that will not be revealed and hidden that will not be known. And don't you know that no matter what you've done, no matter who you are, no matter how your heart is, God still loves you. Right? No matter how bad that thing is within you, God still loves you. No matter what it is. No matter what your circumstances are. So why bother being fake? Why bother? Right? Why present yourself differently than who you are? Why make up stories that aren't true? He loves you anyway. And, and disobeying God in our sin, one of the first things we do is to try to fool ourselves into thinking that God is, is not in our immediate presence. We, we try to push Him away. We, we can't think of Him as being right in our midst because if we always knew that God was right here in our immediate presence, wouldn't it be so hard to be disobedient to Him? Wouldn't it be so hard to sin against Him? I mean, even think about when you're driving, right? If you always knew that a cop was always in that corner, you just mm, slow down. Right? You, 
if you knew that He was in your presence, you probably wouldn't do those things. And in our disobedience, we ignore God. We don't think about Him. We pay no attention to His character, His, His holiness, His, His presence, His will. And instead, we preoccupy ourselves with anything that, that keeps our minds thinking about other things so we don't have to think about reality. And when we want to be, when we want to be disobedient, when we want to sin, when we want to do something wrong, it always involves us running away from God. And we're all guilty of this. We're all sinners. We do this all the time. It happens to everyone listening to this. And maybe it's something like this. God, God asked me to go to Nineveh, right? I know God wants me to confront a particular person, to, to have a conversation about truth. Now, but, but that's difficult, God. I don't want to do that. It's very unpleasant. I don't want to be confrontational. So maybe I'm deciding to go to Tarshish instead. Perhaps you're struggling with letting go of something like your financial resources. It has such a grip on your life. And God wants you to trust Him instead of trusting in money. And in tough economic times like this, it's easy to justify not, not being generous and, and holding on to your finances. But God wants us to give joyfully. God is faithful to provide for us. He deeply cares for us. So do you continue giving tithes? Do you just continue giving offerings? Or are you sailing to Tarshish? And maybe you know God is calling you to serve in a particular area. But you don't want to because it's not part of your skill set. You don't know what to expect. There's too much uncertainty. So instead, you're heading to Tarshish. Maybe it involves some sort of sin in your life. You know God wants you to confess a specific sin in your life. And you know God wants you to admit a sinful habit in your life. And perhaps it's a sexual relationship or a sexual habit. Maybe it's an issue of needing to forgive someone because the bitterness and resentment that you're harboring is not of him. Maybe it's a spirit of condemnation that you need to let go of. Whatever it is, you don't want to. You'd rather go to Tarshish. I don't blame you. Spain is nice. It really is. I've been there a half a dozen times in my life, right? It's beautiful. Food's good. Weather's nice. So where my wife and I, we were courting at the time she was out there. That's what Jonah does. He thought as... As everyone, one of us thinks, I can run from God. I can get away with this. No one's ever going to know. There are some of you who are at this point right now, running. Continuing on in verse 3, we went down, he went down to Joppa, found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now, Joppa is a major port city. And you can't, can't go to Tarshish, or Joppa is a major port city, and you can't go to Tarshish from a tiny port. Right. But notice something very interesting here in, in verse three. He paid the fare. He paid the fare. And this is not some small feat in that day. Right. The usage of, of currency, the usage of money to pay for things is, is a relatively new concept back here, back in this day. And this is an economy based primarily on bartering, not currency exchange. And currency wasn't a common thing amongst the Israelites of this day. And there aren't many people who would be able to do what Jonah is doing. Buy passage to Tarshish? This is not a cheap thing to do. Try going to Spain now. Can you imagine how expensive it was back then? Jonah was big money. Big money Joe. Right? He had enough money to look, book a long voyage to Tarshish. And, and this is something that some of us struggle with as well. We, like Jonah... We have mobility. We have options. And that's one of the dangerous things about money. 
Having money gives us options. It gives us mobility to make it easier for us to believe that we can run from God. People get fooled into thinking that because you can still afford to have a good time. You can still afford to travel. You can still have afford, afford to have a nice meal, to, to buy gadgets or do whatever you want. It means that everything's okay. But it's just a way for you to run away from reality. People shop to do that sort of thing. People travel. People go out to eat. They do all these sort of things with money to try to get away from reality. And Jonah gets on a ship, and it's most likely a trading ship to Tarshish. And why is this significant? It's not simply because it's the opposite direction of Nineveh, but it's also because it's the opposite kind of city. Nineveh is the capital of the great Assyrian Empire. It's an empire with incredible military might. And Tarshish was not known for its military might, but it was known to be a great trading post, to be a great place of commerce and trade. It had immense wealth. It provided a place of commerce over the seas. And this trade over the seas was relatively new as well, and it was making some people really, really rich. And the new riches bred arrogance, it bred greed, it bred pride. And so the ship of Tarshish became a symbol of wealth in the ancient world. And ships of Tarshish are mentioned numerous times in the Old Testament. And like I said before, there are disagreements as to where Tarshish is, but there is more agreement that ships of Tarshish meant a distant trade voyage. So bottom line, ships of Tarshish were a big deal in the Old Testament, and they were real. They were literal ships that became symbols of greed, of independence, of power, of, of riches, of technology. Can you believe that there once existed a group of people who were so delusional to think that their clever economic system, that their technology, that their wealth could make them secure? That's unbelievable. I can't believe there was once people like that. Can you imagine the human race was once so foolish? I can't believe it. Does this sound familiar to you? Jonah ran away, and put it in modern terms, Jonah ran away to Wall Street. Jonah ran away to Silicon Valley. Jonah gets on the ship of Tarshish. People have been boarding that ship forever. They board it now, right? And he thinks he's running towards safety, and maybe you do too. Maybe you think you're running towards opportunity, you're running towards security, but maybe that looks safe from a human viewpoint, but it's not safe at all. Maybe the only real safe place is to be in the will of God. Even if the will of God takes you to Nineveh, a frightening place where you have no desire to go, but it's actually the best place to go. Where God leads you is where it's best. For Jonah, Nineveh is really a safe place. Verse 4, But the Lord sent out a great wind on the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea. Notice that word great again. God is going to be doing some great things here. So that the ship was about to be broken up. Then the mariners were afraid and every man cried out to his God and threw the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. And this is a major storm. We're talking about a ship to Tarshish, right? A large trade ship. A ship engineered to withstand storms and make long voyages. is falling apart? That's quite a storm. Right? We're talking about professional sailors here. You don't pilot large trade ships if you've never sailed before, right? These guys have been through storms. This is something else. They're, they're all well-seasoned mariners who, who don't panic from just normal storms at sea, but for some reason they're panicking now, so this is a huge storm for them. They're so terrified that they start dumping their cargo. All the goods that they have, all the treasures, all the, the items of trade. This is a big deal. Right? These trade ships would go on voyages that took a really long time. Some of these voyages lasted them years. 
And, and keep in mind that in these days, you didn't have many chances to attain great wealth. It's kind of like putting all your eggs in one basket. Everything that these sailors had, these traders had, is in that boat. Right? There's no insurance. You can't make it back. You can't file an insurance claim. Oh, I lost this. Pay me back. There's no insurance company. Right? They had a simple insurance back then in, in that a trader bore the risk of the trade by, by giving out loans that, that had to later be repaid with interest. But that was only repaid if the goods arrived safely. So if you just dumped it, that's it. They didn't have bankruptcy laws. You couldn't be like Donald Trump, right? Lose everything and then be a billionaire later on. You didn't have that. To throw things away like this, this is a big deal. These guys are, are throwing away their hopes. They're throwing away their dreams into the sea. This is a bad storm to make somebody do this. They're, they're crying out to their own gods and dumping their livelihoods into the sea. And outside of Israel, the ancient world didn't have a belief in monotheism, a, a belief in one God. These are polytheists. They had their own little tribal gods. Each ethnic group or tribal group had their own gods. And, and something interesting happens here. Verse 5 tells us, Every man cried out to his God. And this is a, a very multicultural crew. This is a very diverse crew here. See, there, there's a lot of religious pluralism on this ship. And it's tolerated within the crew until the sea is crazy. When everything's calm, everything's fine. Hey, I can accept whatever you have, whatever. We'll pray to our own things. Now when things get serious, when everything in life is okay and, and God, any God's going to do, right? But when the serious storm hits, everything changes. Everything changes. The God that, that was easily accepted because of your upbringing is, now, upbringing is now questioned and you hope one of these gods you pray to turns out to be real. The God you rely on, can, can that God deliver you from the serious storms of life? So is money your God? Is education your God? Is, is your family your God? Or, or is God your God? Is Jesus your God? And continuing on in verse 5, But Jonah had gone down into the lowest parts of the ship, had lain down and was fast asleep. Jonah's a smart guy. He knew where to get some sleep. And being at either end of the boat, whether it's the bow or the stern, it's going to pitch a lot, right? So he's not going to be able to sleep very well. So he's at the keel of the boat, the lowest part of the boat, the most stable part of the boat. And even, even at that, I don't know how he's able to sleep so deeply in such a crazy storm. See, I, I love deep sea fishing, so I've been out there several times. But, but when I go, um, I do everything possible not to get seasick. Everything. I, I wear the patch. I, I take the pills. I wear acupressure bands. I, I eat ginger. I eat peppermints. I do it all. And, and I, I still get seasick with all that stuff. And I've been out deep sea fishing at times, and sometimes it's pretty rough out there. I can't sleep. But here Jonah is sleeping in the middle of a terrible storm. Right? Verse 6. So the captain came to him and said to him, What do you mean, sleeper? Arise, call on your God. Perhaps your God will consider us so that we may not perish. What are you doing, man? Get up! Don't just sleep, we're going to die! Right? Do something! Do you guys see the irony here? A pagan, a Gentile captain of a ship is pleading for Jonah, a prophet, a, a, a man of God, to pray. That's also pretty funny, but it's, that's ironic, isn't it? A Gentile pagan is doing what a prophet should be doing. A Gentile pagan ship's captain is telling the man of God to pray while Jonah, the prophet, is doing what pagans do. Sleeping when he should be praying. And Jonah continues to do nothing in verse 
nothing. And then verse seven. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know for whose cause this trouble has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, please tell us for whose cause is this trouble upon us? What is your occupation and where do you come from? What is your country and of what people are you? So he said to them, I'm a Hebrew. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, Why have you done this? For the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Now the phrase, for the men knew that he fled from the presence of the Lord because he had told them, is really significant. There are Hebrew words used for God in the Old Testament. One of the most common words used for God is Elohim. Elohim is the generic Hebrew term of God, the God of Israel, or for gods, like the travel gods the sailors were praying to. And another word that is often used for the God in the Old Testament is Adonai. And this is a generally translated Lord, right? But, it, but it's also used in relationship between people, such as a relationship between a master and a servant. It's the word for Lord or master. It was also used in marriage relationships back in those days. Sarah called Abraham Lord. My wife uses Lord when she speaks to me. No. I wake up in the morning and she says, Lord, um, what would you like for breakfast this morning? And, and then I wake up from my pleasant dream. And, and so when the Lord, the word Lord appears in, in lowercase in the Old Testament, it, it can just be a title of respect. OK. And then there's another word that is used for God. It's these four letters. Y.H. W.H., the Tetragrammaton, right? Anyone know how to pronounce that? We, we have guesses. Most of us think it's Yahweh, but none of us really knows for sure. We pronounce it Yahweh, but we really don't know. In Hebrew, we, get, we, only get, uh, uh, we don't get the vowels, right? In, in Hebrew, we try to provide the vowels in the text. And this word was regarded as a sacred word by Israel because this is not a title. This is a name. And God revealed to Moses on Mount Sinai his name when God said to Moses in Exodus chapter 3, verse 14, I am who I am. Why does God present himself like this? Because a name is a vulnerable thing. It's, it's such an intimate thing to give someone your name. And people can misuse your name if they want to. And God's name was regarded with such reverence to Israel that to this day in synagogues, it, it's not pronounced because they don't want to treat it with irreverence. And it's so precious and so loved that when Hebrew scriptures are being read, when Torah is being read in synagogue to this present day, when the reader comes to this word, the word that will be pronounced is Adonai, not the name. And then there's this word Jehovah. Now, Jehovah is the Latinized form of the divine name. And in the ancient Hebrew language, the, the name appears as four consonants, which, which transliterate into English as Y-H-W-H, or the English equivalent is J-H-V-H. And so the English equivalent that is mostly, most widely accepted is Jehovah. Now, when you see the, Lord, the, the word Lord, all caps, L-O-R-D, all caps, in your English Bibles, it's, it's Jehovah. Or Jehovah. When you see the, the word Lord with lower cases, if it's a capital L and then lower cases O-R-D or just all L-O-R-D, the, the word is Adonai. So back to the story. The sailors had been praying to their own tribal gods, to their own Elohim. 
And, and then they start asking Jonah a bunch of questions in verse 8 to find out what's going on. Jonah responds in verse 9 by telling them that he's a Hebrew. I, I'm monotheistic. I believe in one God. I believe in the one and true God. I believe in the God of Moses. I believe in the God of Abraham. He, he's the God that created the sea and, and that dry land that we want to get to. And the mariners knew that Jonah was running away from his God because he told them he was. And they just figured it was a tribal God just like theirs he was running away from. So what's the big deal? Right? The Assyrians have their gods. Tarshish has its God. No big deal. But then when they see this crazy storm and Jonah says, There is the God. The Lord. All caps. He's the one that sent the storm. He can operate anywhere. Even though he's the God of Israel, he can operate anywhere he wants to. And, and he's for real. He controls the heavens. He controls the earth, the sea. He controls everything. And he has a name, and his name will be known. And these guys are freaked out, and they come to know the God of Israel through the storm on the ship of Tarshish. Another ironic thing. Go to Nineveh. Preach against it. Jonah rebels, he goes the other way, but a crew full of pagan Gentile men come to know God. And it's not because Jonah wanted to share God with them. Jonah doesn't even mention anything until he has to. He doesn't want them to know who his God is. And even though Jonah was making so many mistakes along the way, and he was a prophet, he was a man of God, God used him to be an instrumental part to these pagans, to these Gentiles being converted. And God is so much greater than the man, even if the man is a prophet. It's about God's will being done, not our will. And verse 11, things get worse. Then they said to, the, said to him, What shall we do to you that, that the sea may be calm for, for us? For the sea was growing more tempestuous. And he said to them, Pick me up, throw me into the sea, then the sea will be, become calm for you. For I know that this great tempest is because of me. Can you picture this scene? What are we going to do? This, this thing's getting worse. We're going to die. Jonah says, throw me overboard. And Jonah's not running anymore, right? And, and the guys are like, what? No way, man. We're, we're sailors. We have a code. We don't just throw people overboard. What are you talking about, right? That's murder. In verse 13, Nevertheless, the men rode hard to return to land, but they could not, for the sea continued to grow more tempestuous against them. And the mariners know that that if they don't do something, they're going to die. But they, they don't want to sacrifice Jonah. Another ironic thing here. Here's a bunch of sailors who, who are, are complete strangers to Jonah. But these guys have more compassion on Jonah, the Hebrew prophet, the man of God, than he, the man of God, has for the people of Nineveh. Ironic. And I think there's a possibility that Part of what the author is saying, and I say author because we don't really know who the author is. Jewish, uh, Jewish uh, tradition says that it was Jonah, but there's other scholars that just say that it was an anonymous person. And it's, a, it's not a story by Jonah, but it's a story about Jonah. But anyway, that the author is telling us that we have to be very careful about judging who's good and who's bad. About judging who is on God's side and who is not on God's side. We have to be really careful in making judgments about such things. We don't have the luxury to have a, a spirit of pride, a spirit of, of superiority or, or some, some complex of superiority. We can't practice partiality or, or harbor condemnation as people of God. 
And notice how the sailors have compassion. Notice their love for humanity, their love for a stranger to the point that they're willing to risk their own lives to row a boat to dry land, even though this storm is strong and it's getting stronger. So, so they cry out a prayer. And before they were praying to their own gods, their own Elohim. But notice the change in verse 14. Therefore, they cried out to the Lord and said, We pray, O Lord, please do not let us perish for this man's life. And do not charge us with innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it has pleased you. Who are they praying to now? The Lord. All caps. Right? Title. Not title, Elohim. Name. Jehovah. They call out in God, to God twice in that verse. By name. They aren't praying to their tribal gods anymore. These guys believe in the God of Abraham, the God of Moses, the Israelite God. In verse 15, so they picked up Jonah and threw him out into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Picture the scene. They pick up Jonah. Jonah and the sailors see this, this awesome storm. They're terrified that they're going to die. And, and their, their long-range trade vessels being torn apart by this storm. Now, as these guys are picking him up and they're going to toss Jonah over, what's going through Jonah's mind? He's probably thinking he's going to die. He's going to drown to death. He's going to die a terrible death of drowning. Right? And, you know, I, I was really dumb. Well, I'm still kind of dumb. But back in the day, I was even dumber. And I used to go bodyboarding all the time. Every day. Down in Southern California. And um, after high school, after whatever sport practice, me and my friends would go down. We'd go bodyboarding. And in the winter of 91... There's, I think it was 91. A huge winter storm comes down to Southern California. And so it's all in the news. Yeah, 15 to 20 footers out here. Me and my friends, oh, yeah. Duh, let's go. Like, how dumb can you be? They're telling people, do not go out there. Do not. I, I think that if the newscasters were really smart, just don't say anything. And then no dumb teenagers like me would go out there. Anyway, we're, we're going out there and... Like, whoa, totally scary. Like, let's go. So all of us are going out there. I'm really surprised none of us died. So first wave, I go out there, and, and this thing pummels me. Um, I, rec- I, I remember, like, looking at my bodyboard up. It was, like, up where that ceiling is, and then a leash, and then me, and then my fins. And I'm like this. And it's just, like, rolling I prayed. I, I don't know how many times I could have died from drowning. There's multiple times I, would, I should have died from drowning. I just prayed. I confessed my sins. I was like, God, I, I'm sorry for being so stupid. Um, tell my mom I love her and like all this stuff. And like, I, I'm, just, I'm just dead. I know I'm dead, right? And then a fish came and swallowed me. No, I'm kidding. Um, anyway, I, I, I don't know how I made it. I, I came up and then I went back on shore and... Uh, all my other friends are there too. I'm like, we're not going back. You're just all like dead. So I just imagine what's going through Jonah's head. Like, I'm, I'm so dead. I'm so dead. And I'm going to die a terrible death of this water going into my lungs. And, and I'm going to have to feel all this pain. And I'm, I'm dead. Right? But you know, he's decided that he's not running from God anymore. It's not good for him. It's not good for the people around him. So throw me over. Throw me over. And when, when we run from God, sometimes when we run long enough, we, we live in the storm of, of disobedience in our heart. 
We live in the storm of our sin. And perhaps in our situations, perhaps in our circumstances, because there are always prices to pay for running from God, it it may show up negatively in our attitudes, in, in our actions, in our behaviors. It might show up in our relationships. Relationships that we know we shouldn't be in. Relationships that are unhealthy, yet yet we still choose to be in them. And maybe you're running from what the Lord has called you to do. You know there's something that He wants you to do, but, but you choose to run away instead. You choose to go the opposite way. And perhaps it's in your heart or your emotions where, where you're choosing to harbor bitterness or hatred or resentment or anger. And whatever it is, you know you're running and the storm isn't going to stop until you decide to stop running. Until you give it all up to God. Your life, your heart, your relationships, your time, your money, everything. And when you feel like you've given up everything, you might feel like you're going to die. Like a bunch of people are going to throw you off the side of the boat. And there's no way that you're going to live through it. But then the storm calms down. Chapter 2 happens. But before we get there, the next, next time, let, let's go in the last verse here that we're going to go over tonight. Verse 16. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly and offered a sacrifice to the Lord and took vows. They started worshiping God. They started showing God their hearts of commitment, of, of thankfulness, their hearts of devotion. This is quite a sight here, right? This pagan Gentile ship becomes a place of worship. Right? From ship of Tarshish to temple of God. That wasn't part of Jonah's plan either. That was God's plan. Another irony here. Right? Jonah thought that he could throw God's plans off. But God had other plans that were more than just Jonah and the Ninevites. God is awesome. And this, this ironic thing, right? Pagan Gentiles worshipping the God of Israel on the ship of Tarshish and Jonah. Jonah, the, the Israel, Israel prophet, Israel's prophet, sinking down into the sea. But before we, we go, I, I want to give you a, a summary of chapter 1, which is pretty easy to remember. And uh, something that I think you can probably quote to anyone. So in the first chapter of Jonah, God says, Joe, go. Right? Jonah says, no, go. God says, oh, blow. Jonah says, so, so. Captain says, yo, bro. Jonah says, throw Joe. Sailor says, whoa, row. So now you all know the first chapter of Jonah. So that's, that's the executive summary of Jonah chapter 1. And the, sailors, the sailors come to know God, but for Jonah, his voyage is just starting. Right? We'll, we'll pick up the story next time and find out that it's, it's not about a fish. It's not about a whale or a fish or whatever else you want to sea serpent, whatever. And before we go, I want to encourage any of you who are, who are running from God that it's never too late to quit running from God. But the other side of it's true, too. It's, it's never too soon to quit running from God. And perhaps you're running in, in really obvious ways to where people around you, people who love you, people who know you, people who, who, who care for you deeply, they can see it as plain as day that you're running. And maybe you're running in secret, hidden ways, covert ways, because you're afraid of showing who you really are. You're too prideful to deal with the truth. And maybe you're not even aware of running until now. Maybe the Spirit is talking to you about it. Whatever area of life it may be, you're going to have to deal with it. You have to. 
That's, that's life. And perhaps a storm has hit in your life or a storm is, is coming or you're in the middle of a storm. Don't, don't wait for it to get any worse. Jesus always has an open invitation to us to, to come to him. Come to me. And running away doesn't work in life. It, it, it catches up. The things you don't deal with catch up. It doesn't work, right? And so this week, let's think about our lives. Let's reflect upon how, how, how we're living. Let, let's consider what we're, we're doing with our lives. Let's wait and listen to God and, and ask the Holy Spirit to minister to us, to show us what's going on with us. And, God if, and, and ask God if there's a, a Nineveh that He's calling you to. Ask Him if there's something you're running from or, or resisting Him on, even though He's asked you to do something. And maybe He's telling you to arise and go to blank. Go. Or are you going to do the opposite? Go through a storm and make things tough? Let's pray. God, you're, you're all-knowing. There's no fooling you um, to know who, who we truly are. You, you know everything about us. And, and you know that we, we often run like Jonah ran. And we get intimidated. We get fearful. We get selfish. And we shut you out of our lives when it's convenient to do that. And, and um, we start doing things we want to do instead. And yet, um, you're always there. Always ready to receive us with your love. And I ask, Heavenly Father, for, for you to deliver those who are struggling spiritually. I ask, Lord, that, that you will set free those who are caught in a storm in, in their life, whether it's a relationship, a behavior, an attitude, a situation, uh, circumstances, whatever it is. If there is some secret that is being hidden or covered up, I pray that, that it's revealed and that, you, um, that we as a, as a community of um, believers in Jesus are a community of grace to walk with people through those difficulties. I ask that you would give people the, the courage to run to you instead of away from you. And Lord, please help each of us to stop running away from you and reveal to us what a great God that you are and what a loving God you are. In Jesus' name, amen.